challenging, thought-provoking, insightful. This is the Ninja Pastor with Sunday's God in Country with Dr. Sean. Hosted by nationally known speaker, Reverend Dr. Sean Michael Greener. Not your typical reverend. Dr. Sean is a proud U.S. military veteran, former law enforcement officer, founder of the internationally regarded executive protection team. Through his riveting national speaking, this ninja pastor tells it like it is. This show is biblically and politically engaged in the battle to save our country with a pedal to the metal with this Sunday's edition of Sundays with Dr. Sean. Buckle up. Here's your host, the author of the critically acclaimed book, Excellence Killed the Church, How Mediocrity is Destroying America, Reverend Dr. Sean, the Ninja Pastor, with today's message. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to all the folks in chat. You've reached uh, Sundays with Dr. Sean. Uh, We're glad to have Alaska represented, upstate New York represented. We have uh, several different countries represented. We have a lot of places within the United States uh, down south. We've got some folks out on Mountain Standard Time. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate you making us part. Um, Also, just really quick before I get into the message, which is going to come at you really, really quickly, uh, I'm now being followed not only by Media Matters, but also by a Satanist group, uh, and their leaders have been vigorously posting on my reach in social media. So uh, if if anybody runs across something, I treat them with respect. You'll see that I treat them with dignity and respect no matter how they act. There's a lady named Cindy. I'm hoping that she listens. She's an atheist, and she thinks we're all silly for believing the way we do. She thinks today is just a waste of time that science proves uh, her to be right, and that's okay. That's okay. All of us at some point or another, we're in a place of disbelief. What we do know is is one day, for us, one glad day, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. And she will bow too, and her friends will bow, and the folks that don't believe will bow. If you are wearing a cross, I would like you, to, if you're able to, to remove it, place it in your strongest hand, your most capable hand. I'd like for you to not put it down. In the radio audience, if you're listening and you're wearing a cross, uh, I want you to take take it off if it's a necklace or a bracelet or whatever. If you're at all possible, all able to do it, I'd like you to take it off. Put it in your strongest hand and hold on to it. We'll give you further instructions. Yeshua knew the disciples could not bear the full truth. They knew, as we will soon learn, neither can we. John 16:12 reads this way. Yeshua said to his disciples, I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. However, when the Spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own initiative but will say only what he hears he will also announce to you the events of the future he will glorify me because he will receive from what is mine and announce it to you everything the father has is mine this is why i said that he received from what is mine and we'll announce it to you. Now, come on for real. If you have a cross on, I'm not going to embarrass you, but if you have a cross on, nobody in this group wears a cross, but um, in the radio audience, I would strongly encourage you to take the cross off, put it in your strongest, most capable hand if you're able to do that. 
Then I'd like you to hold on to it throughout the entire message. Matthew 27, 1. Early in the morning, all the head Kohanim and elders met to plan how to bring about Yeshua's death. Then they put him in chains. They led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Yehuda, who had betrayed him, saw that Yeshua had been condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the head Kohanim and the elders, saying, I sinned in betraying an innocent man to death. What is that to us? They answered. That's your problem. Hurling the pieces of silver into the sanctuary, he left, and he went off, and he hanged himself. The head Kohanim took the silver coins and said, It is prohibited to put this into the temple treasury because it is blood money. So they decided to use it to buy the potter's to buy the potter's field as a cemetery for foreigners. This is how it came to be called the field of blood, a name it still bears. Then what Yirmiyehu, the prophet, spoke was fulfilled. And they took the 30 silver coins, which was the price the people of Israel had agreed to pay for him and used them to buy the potter's field, just as the Lord directed me. Meanwhile, Yeshua was brought before the governor, and the governor put this question to him. Are you the king of the Jews? Yeshua answered, the words are yours. But when he was accused by the head Kohanim and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, don't you hear all these charges that they are making against you? But to the governor's great amazement, he did not say a single word in reply to the accusations. It was the governor's custom during the festival to set free one prisoner, whomever the crowd asked for. There was at that time a notorious prisoner being held named Yeshua Baraba. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to set free for you? Yeshua or Barabba, called the Messiah. Yeshua that called the Messiah. For he understood that it was out of jealousy that they had handed him over. While he was sitting in court, his wife sent him a message. Leave that innocent man alone. Today in a dream, I suffered terribly because of him. But the head Kohanim persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas release and to have Yeshua executed at the stake. Which of the two do you want me to set free for you? asked the governor. But Abba, they answered. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Yeshua called the Messiah? They all said, put him to death on the stake. When he asked why, the cra- what crime has he committed? They shouted all the louder, put him to death at the stake. Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, and said, My hands are clean of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released to them Barabbas. But Yeshua, After having him whipped, he handed over to be executed on a stake. 
The governor's soldiers took Yeshua into the headquarters building, and the whole battalion gathered around him. They stripped off his clothes and put him in a scarlet robe, wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head, and put a stick in his right hand. Then they kneeled in front of him and made fun of him. Hail to the king of the Jews! They spit on him and they used the stick to beat him about his head. When they had finished ridiculing him, they took off the robe, put his own clothes back on him, and led him away to be nailed to the execution stake. As they were leaving, they met a man from Cyrene named Shimeon, and they forced him to carry Yeshua's execution stake. When they arrived at a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine mixed with bitter gall to drink, but after tasting it, he would not drink it. After they had nailed him to the stake, they divided his clothes among them by throwing dice. Then they sat down to keep watch over him there. Above his head, they placed a written notice stating the charge against him. This is Yeshua, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were placed on execution stakes with him, one on the right and one on the left. People passing by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you can destroy the temple, can you? And rebuild it in three days? Save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from that stake. Likewise, the head Kohanim jeered at him, along with the Torah teachers and elders. He saved others, but he can't save himself. So he's the king of Israel, is he? Let him come down now from the stake. Then we'll believe him. Oh, he trusted God, so let him rescue him if he wants him. After all, he did say, I'm the son of God. Even the robbers nailed up with him, insulted him in the same way. From noon until three o'clock in the afternoon, all the land was covered with darkness. At about three, Yeshua uttered a loud cry, Eli, Eli, lama shavaktani, my God. My God, why have you deserted me? On hearing this, some of his bystanders, some of the bystanders said, He's calling for Elihu. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, soaked it in vinegar, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink. The rest said, Wait, let's see if Elihu comes and rescues him. But Yeshua, again crying out in a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. At that moment, the paroket in the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom. And there was an earthquake, with rocks splitting apart. Also the graves were opened, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. And after Yeshua rose, they came out of the graves and went into the holy city where many people saw them. When the Roman officer and those who were keeping watch over Yeshua saw the earthquake and what was happening, they were all struck and said, He really was a son of God. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-five. There were many women there looking on from a distance. They had followed Yeshua from the Galil, helping him. Among them were Miriam from Magdala, and Miriam the mother of Yaakov, and Yosef, and the mother of Zavdei's son. Toward evening there came a wealthy man from Ramatayim named Yosef, who was himself a Talmud of Yeshua. He approached Pilate and asked for Yeshua's body. And Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Yosef took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen sheet and laid it in his own tomb 
which he had recently cut out of the rock. After rolling a large stone in front of the entrance to the tomb, he went away. Miriam of Magdala and the other Miriam stayed there, sitting opposite the grave. The next day, after the preparation, the head Kohanim and the Prushim went together to Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that the deceiver said, while he was still alive, after three days I will be raised. Therefore, order that the grave be made secure till the third day, otherwise the Talmudim may come. Steal him away and say to the people, He was raised from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You may have your guard. Go and make the grave as secure as you know how. So they went and made the grave secure by sealing the stone and putting the guard on watch. After Shabbat, toward dawn on Sunday, Miriam of Magdala and the other Miriam went to see the grave. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of Adonai came down from heaven, rolled away the stone, and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so terrified at him that they trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, don't be afraid. I know King for Yeshua, who was executed on the stake. He is not here because he has been raised, just as he said. Come and look at the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the Talmudim, he has been raised from the dead, and now he is going to the Galil ahead of you. You will see him there. Now I have told you. So they left the tomb quickly, frightened, yet filled with joy, and they ran to give the news to his Talmudim. Suddenly Yeshua met them and said, Shalom. They came up to him, and they took a hold of his feet as they fell down in front of him. Then Yeshua said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galil. Go to the Galil. They will see me there. As they were going, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the head Kohanim everything that had happened. And they met with the elders, and after discussing the matter, they gave the soldiers a sizable sum of money and said to them, Tell people, his Talmudim came during the night and stole his body while we were sleeping. If the governor hears of it, we will put things right with him and keep you from getting into trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were told. And this story has been spread by Judeans until this very day. Excruciating pain. Excruciate, which is Latin for out of the cross. This is from which we derive the word crucifixion. Dr. David Tarasaka in 1996 decided that what he would do is sit down and write out the medical explanation for everything that happened to Christ that day. There were many steps to crucifixion, flogging, striking, whipping, and more. Now I want you to remember that Yeshua was a carpenter. He was a hard physical worker. He ate the foods of the land and was in very good physical shape. Then as tra a traveling rabbi, he walked everywhere. He was the one who walked everywhere, miles and miles. I don't know if you've ever gone to Israel, but Israel's terrain is not exactly flat and easy to walk. 2.5 miles of walking in just a matter of a couple of days. No sleep before his arrest. He was the victim of six illegal trials. He was mocked by all in each of the trials all along the way. But the worst part 
the very worst part is in the process of saving everyone in the world for all of history, his friends that he had traveled with every day for three years all abandoned him. Matthew twenty six seventeen through 29 speaks of the Last Supper, the First Communion, the last of Christ's earthly life. Then he went on to the Garden of Gethsemane, and the, what that means is Gethsemane means the oil press of olives, and oil in the Bible is representative of the Holy Spirit, or Ruach HaKodesh. He was pressed down by the weight of his task. He was pressed down, and yet the Spirit was coming forth. You've all heard it said that uh, he sweat blood, and there are many people that are very, very into science have said, hey, you know what? That doesn't happen. That's silly. That's a, a silly thing. It's just designed. That's why you can't believe the account because, well, it's just overly dramatic. It's just overly dramatic. So we can't we can't believe this account. And yet it's called hematidrosis. It's a real thing. Sweating blood. This is the process of sweating blood. It is the epitome of anguish. Yeshua, under immense pressure, actually sweated blood. In Luke 26, 56, it talks about how he was abandoned by man, by all of his friends, and by Father. Psalm 22, 11 talks about being all alone, no help, totally deserted. His closest friends with whom he had spent every day, all day, for three years, his hand-picked closest associates, he ate, slept, and ministered with these friends. He healed people. He brought people back to life. He gave people sight who had never seen. He gave people the ability to walk in front of these men who had never walked. And yet, in the time of his greatest need, they were nowhere. Betrayed by Judas, arrested by the Jews, his people. John eighteen twelve talks about how Yeshua was bound and tried in the first trial in the court of the high priest, very close to where he had just had the first communion, the upper room. Oh, the irony. I want you to understand, I mentioned that the trials of Yeshua were all illegal, and here's why. Trial could only occur in the regular meeting places of the Sanhedrin, not where they lived, not in homes or secret places. Trials could not be during feast days or at night. This was during feast days and at night. A guilty verdict could not could only be pronounced the day following the trial. This was pronounced immediately. Under law, the Sanhedrin could not pronounce the death penalty, yet they did. In John 18:31, it details only the Romans could put someone to death, yet they found a way around this law. Mark 15:15, 15, 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas, a murderer. He lived in the culture of death, and yet the one who brought life and salvation and redemption for all of us took that man's place on the cross. We might have, we might as well all be Barabbas. There's uh, something talked about in Scripture uh, and in Hebrew culture and about the Romans. The Romans would, would beat you, would whip you one from death, usually 39, one from death. They determined medically, uh, and I guess in their manner of science, that you beat somebody, you whip somebody 39 times, they're going to live probably, but you whip them 40, they're probably going to die. 
They tied Yeshua to a stone. He couldn't stand up. He was bent over, his back exposed. Then they struck him with a flog rum. The first few stripes, they ripped the skin away from his back. The next stripes stripped the flesh from the bone. The next stripes ripped actual bone from Yeshua's body. The loss of blood was unsustainable for normal people. It was pumping like water from his body, like water in a fountain. Matthew 27, 28 through 30, the soldiers, soldiers stripped Yeshua and put on a cap of thorns. Those thorns were one to two inches long, and they were so hard they could be hammered into wood. They were so hard and so thick they were often used for firewood. And then they took that stick, and they beat him about the head with the stick while spitting on him. I'll remind you, the head wounds bleed profusely. Many would have died from this beating. Why didn't Yeshua die from this beating? Why? Because he had yours and my cross yet to bear. He could have stopped the torture at any moment. But he still thought that we were worth it. Isaiah 50, verse 8, and Isaiah 52, 13, and 14 prophesied that Yeshua would be beaten beyond recognition and that people, upon seeing him, would be appalled at his appearance and that no one would come to his aid. And no one did. Maybe this is why he wasn't recognized after the resurrection. He no longer resembled a man. They then took the stick, the same one they had been beating him with, and they used it to jam the cap of thorns down into his head. The Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. The patibulum, 80 to 110 pounds. It was the patibulum was the crossbar. It was thrown upon his torn and bloody back, bones exposed, open and raw wounds. Then he was forced to walk 650 yards after the beating that he took. No sleep, nothing to eat, nothing to drink. Most would have died performing this excruciating task in the condition that Christ was in, yet Yeshua didn't die. Why? Why didn't Yeshua die? Still had yours and my cross to bear. He could have stopped. He could have called 10,000 angels if he wanted. He could have changed his mind. At any point in time, he could have said, not worth it. But he didn't because he still thought that we were worth it. He had yours and my burden of sin to bear. He chose to remain in this torture. He thought we were worth it. The nails in his feet and hands, let's talk about that a moment. They stripped off his blood-soaked robe. They ripped it from his raw back. They threw him down with the 80 to 100-pound patibulum. They took seven to nine-inch spikes, and they hammered him. They hammered them into his wrists and his feet. I want you to take your thumb and press between these two bones behind the wrist. That is where they nailed these spikes, not through the hand, but through the wrist. First, in each wrist, they were careful not to stretch the hands of Yeshua out too far, because if you stretch the condemned's arms too far, the process of crucifixion would not take place as intended. Then they placed Yeshua's feet, one on top of the other. Then they pushed the feet up, bending the knees. 
Then they took the spike and they placed it over his instep. And with three to four strikes, they drove the spike through his feet, both of them, into the wood of the stipe. So securely that that one spike would support his entire body. They took Yeshua, pushed his body into this position on the stipe and the patibulum. They affixed the stipe and patibulum in a, and in a whole shoving moment. They shoved the stipe into the hole with a thud. The entire weight of Yeshua's body crashed onto the spikes, searing through his wrists and through his feet. In this position, one can barely breathe as the body, his body weight restricted lung expansion and contraction. In order to breathe or to speak, Yeshua actually had to push his raw back against the raw and rough-hewn wood, placing all of his weight on the spike in his feet and pulling with his wrists and pressing against the spikes in his feet. He had to pull himself up just to breathe. At this point, great waves of cramps sweep all over the body, the lactic acid surging through the body. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but it cannot be expelled, and as the carbon dioxide accumulates into his lungs, breathing becomes more difficult. Perhaps the seven things Christ said on the cross may now have a greater importance to you, knowing what he had to go through just in order to speak those seven things. Yeshua had to put himself through excruciating pain, pushing and pulling himself on the spikes just to speak. My goodness, shouldn't we know what those words are and why he uttered them? The first words Yeshua uttered from the cross were regarding uh, the Roman soldiers who were casting lots at his feet for Yeshua's garments, likely the very same men that tortured Yeshua in the hours before. These men were in the process of killing Yeshua Hamashiach. And yet he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Yeshua was in the process of being tortured to death by these very people, just feet from him. Yet he chose to forgive his murderers while they were murdering him. You know, we struggle. We struggle to forgive people of of uh, maybe somebody has gossiped about us. Maybe somebody said something about us that was true or untrue. Maybe they did something terrible to us. Maybe they hurt us badly. But they didn't murder us. They weren't in the process of murdering. And yet, Christ gave. Yeshua looked down from his murderer's pool of death and forgave them. The second set of Yeshua's words were to the penitent thief. Thou, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Both thieves knew they deserved the punishment they got. There was no doubt about that. But not Yeshua. He didn't deserve any of it. He deserved to be treated like a king, as the king. And yet, the crass thief on the one side didn't care in whose presence, in whose presence he was. He didn't care. He was vile. And you know, Yeshua expended no effort to condemn this man. Yet Yeshua increased his own torture by pushing against the stipe and grinding against his raw back against the wood, pulling at his wrist, pushing at the spike in his feet. You see, the penitent thief knew, and more importantly, he acknowledged in whose presence he was spending the very last hours, his very last hours, on earth. He knew that he was in the presence 
of the Messiah. The third thing Yeshua said, looking down at his terrified, grief-stricken mother, the one who bore the very Son of God and John in his adolescence, and Yeshua said, Behold thy mother, and then to Mary his mother, Woman, behold thy son. In order to say this, Yeshua had to punish his own body with searing pain. He was establishing a pattern of care for after he was gone. And to do so, he had to force upon himself even more horrible pain on top of horrible pain. The fourth cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Have you ever felt forgotten or forsaken? You know, Yeshua understands how you feel because he felt the very same way. The hours of limitless pain, hanging, twisting spasms that go through Yeshua's body, periods of asphyxiation and spasms interspersed with excruciating pain, blood spilling profusely from his body. A deep, crushing pain in the heart of Yeshua. The pericardium, which is what surrounds your heart, is filling with serum now. Scripture says, my heart is like wax. It is melted. The loss of fluids is critical now. And as he loses more and more fluid, his blood thickens. Yeshua's tortured lungs are making frantic efforts just to take in little sips of air because now they are, too, filling with fluids. The pain never stops going to the brain. He never receives any respite for his pain. He never draws a full breath. His fifth cry out indicates his humanity. I thirst. A cheap wine called Pasco was lifted to Yeshua's lips. He didn't drink. He was yet human. His body was now in extremis. And he said, it is accomplished. Or as many of you know in your Bible, it is finished. Those of you here and around the world listening now, I told you at the beginning to take whatever crosses you had on your body and put them in your strongest hand. You can now lay them down. His one last surge of strength. He presses his torn feet against the spike, his wrist pulling, his torn flesh upon his back, pulling against the wood. Finally, Yeshua says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Then to break the legs to hasten death, they commit fracture. That is to break the legs of the crucified. They didn't have to do that to Yeshua, because he was already dead. John 19.34 tells of the spear thrust into Yeshua's side. The fifth interspace between the intercostals, they stabbed a spear into the heart of Yeshua. Most died of suffocation. Yeshua died of a broken heart. We've seen the evil that man can do against man. We've seen it in the modern age. We've also glimpsed into, glimpsed into the very epitome of evil that man can commit against God. We're told in Scripture that centurion said these words, Surely this man was the Son of God. You might be depressed at this moment. You might be a little down. You might be thinking, wow. If you have an understanding of your sin and my sin, you might say, I contributed to that. I did that. And you'd be right. But the story doesn't end there. 
The time on the cross was not wasted time. It was not a failure or a loss. The time in the tomb was not wasted. Nailed to a wooden cross which was made from a tree that his father created himself was not wasted. Yeshua remained upon the cross because he thought with each passing moment that you are worth it. They are worth it. The world is worth redemption. I want you to know that Yeshua still thinks that today. That's why he has not struck the last note and split the sky from east to west like lightning. He still thinks that we're worth it. He birthed freedom in us because of the empty tomb. He gave us a metaphor for our freedom. He gave us salvation from sin, salvation from needless worry. The cross is empty. The tomb is empty. Yes, he did this for us. He did this for you. He didn't do it so that we would live a hopeless life. He, he did all of this for all of us so that we could live a victorious life, a life of hope, a life of victory, not a life of indecision, disappointment, and years of sorrow and pain. He died. Yeshua died so that we might have an option, the freedom to choose him and thereby choose eternal, blissful life. Here's the really big thing. Matthew 28:16. So the eleven Talmudim went to the hill in the Galil where Yeshua had told them to go. When he saw them, they prostrated themselves before him. But some hesitated. Yeshua came and talked with them. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make people from all nations into Talmudim, immersing them into the reality of the Father, the Son, and the Ruach HaKodesh and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I will be with you always, yes, even until the end of the age. I often say, perhaps now too flippantly lately, maybe lately I, I've developed a little flippant. Maybe I say this saying too easily, too quickly, without considering what it really, really means. I often say, Something sacred hangs in the balance of every moment. You know, Avraham Heschel is the one who said that, and that's who I'm quoting. Something sacred hangs in the balance of every moment. Don't miss the sacred, and don't miss the every. Every moment of our lives here on earth, when we set about to struggle with so many things, we're wandering around as though we are lost, but we are found. We're wandering around wondering when is that thing going to get me? When is that failure going to be the last failure? When is that, when is, when is that mistake going to be the last mistake? I know I'm going to make it because I'm messed up. I'm afflicted. And yet, we don't have to. Even in our darkest loneliest, totally solitary moments. He is with us. I have two friends facing death right now. Two friends facing the end here on earth, very clearly and very obviously. And yet, because they are believers, neither of them are afraid. Something sacred hangs in the balance of every 
moment. You are never alone. In speaking to folks all around the world, I'm going to remind you of something. I said at the beginning, there's a group of atheists, which you don't say atheists, you say atheists, against God. It's not that they're ambivalent about God. They are against God and anything. They acknowledge, more than anybody else on this planet, atheists acknowledge the existence of God. Because if they didn't believe in God, there would be nothing to fight. So, Cindy, if you're listening, God bless you. God bless you and your four children, all very successful people by earth standards. Cindy wanted to engage me in a sparring competition, a little bit of back and forth. And she kept saying, see how you Christians do? You Christians, that's all you know how to do. And, I, and yet I wasn't doing that. She was fighting for her, fighting against herself. What's interesting about Cindy is I think Cindy knows, Cindy absolutely knows that Christ is king. And she knows that he's coming back one day, but I don't think Cindy believes that she's worthy. I don't think Cindy believes, and many others who have communicated with me this week, I don't, believe, I don't think they think they're worthy. I think they think in the depths of their dark hearts, they think, hey, you know what? Neither are you, and you're right. I'm not worthy of what Christ did for me on the cross. I'm not worthy of all the suffering and pain that he endured, all the patience that he had to show. I'm not even one one thousandth worthy. That's what makes it amazing. Amazing grace. It's not, eh, okay, grace. It's amazing grace. My goodness, can you imagine? What if all we had to hope for was science? We had to put our faith in science. You know, science has failed us. You know, what I learned, and my good friend Jerry, uh, shout out to Jerry. God bless you, brother. We're praying for you. Can't wait to have you back. What I learned from Jerry is there's never been not one archaeological find in all of history that's ever disproven anything that's in our scripture. Quite the opposite. Every archaeological find they make is further and greater and deeper and more authentic and valid proof that this word is true. And you know, the, the Satanists now that are following me, it's weird, you know, as soon as you start to gain some notoriety, you know, the people come out of the woodwork. It's kind of crazy crazy folks. When I mean, you look at these people, no offense, but they, they look crazy. They they don't look well in their heads. If you're listening now, hey, I'm just telling you, your mama should have told you, maybe she did. I'm just telling you now as a friend, you might think about not wearing makeup if you're a boy. I don't think that's, especially the white stuff, make you look like a ghost. Nobody wants to hang around with that. Kid you not. Blood dripping from the eyes. That's how they walk around. I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to make fun of them. But I'll tell you this, that's somebody that needs love. That's somebody that's so hopeless in their life. They, they want to claim that they have it. They have it all figured out. Man, you're not smart, I am. Science is better. You believe in a dream, a fantasy. You poor, poor soul. And I never want to fight back with them. I used to when I was younger. I used to. And it's not that I don't know all the theological stuff. My goodness, I've had 11 years of postgraduate education. I think I know a little bit about all the things that you say to somebody. I know all the scriptures that you quote back to them. But you know what? I could quote them as passionately and as perfectly 
as I ever could in, in any of my best days on earth. And they would not fall on their ears, wouldn't touch their heart. Because there's scales over their eyes and over their heart. Their heart is hardened. All I do is pray for them and say, my goodness, how sad. I feel bad for you. Don't feel bad for me. I'm happy. The one fellow that's following me, he's probably listening right now. He said he is the cab driver to the cab, taxi cab to hell. He's the driver of the taxi cab to hell, and he's proud of it. Brother, you're lost, and the thing of it is, is so was I. My point here is to folks who believe, to our Messianic brothers and sisters and to our followers of the way, I'm going to tell you something that, that I hope gives you hope and, and, and a bright, bright light in your heart right now. You know, things were dark before we knew Jesus. Things were hopeless before we knew him. No hope. No hope. We were no different than the person who worships the dark. Without Satan, what do they have? In order for there to be Satan, there is God. You know, everybody talks about Easter, or the, I prefer to call it Resurrection Day. Everybody talks about it, and they say, hey, you know what? This is our chance to convince the lost, to reach out to them. I never feel that way. I never feel that way, day to day. Every day is our time. I might not have gotten the chance to deliver this message today. God might have said it's time. He might have said it's time. This time, maybe I don't survive the car crash. Maybe this time, I don't survive the blood pressure event. Maybe this time I don't survive, and I don't even make it here to deliver this message. God doesn't need me to deliver the message. Even the rocks cry out to his existence. Everywhere you look, there is God. I will say this. I don't want you to miss the sacred, and I don't want you to miss the moment. Something sacred hangs in the balance of every moment. Every moment is every moment of every day. Every time you draw a breath and expel it, remember what he had to do on the cross for you. If you're facing tough times, listen, folks, uh, I'm privileged that this weekend I will be in Ocean City, Maryland, ministering to, I think it's 70 Gold Star families. What a Gold Star, somebody told me this week they didn't know what a Gold Star family was, Gold Star mother or father. A Gold Star is someone who has lost either a son, daughter, husband, or wife, or child in combat, killed in action. I will actually be with someone who has lost both a son and a daughter within just a matter of years. Can you imagine the grief? But I don't go hopelessly. Goodness, if I had to trust in what the atheist or what the Satanist had to say, what would they say to those people? Suck it up, buttercup. Life is over for them. Party on. Pour one out for a brother. Party like there's no tomorrow. We don't have any tomorrow, so what are you worried about? We all live a certain amount of time, and it's over. My goodness. Can you imagine? Those of you who know me know I'm really into photography, and you know what? Sunrise. I love shooting sunsets, but boy, do I love sunrise. I love sunrise. Why? Because it reminds me every single time I see it. I say, one day, the sun will rise, and it will never set again. 
will be in the presence of the Holy King. He's not an amazing God. He is the amazing God. And he sent his son to die on the cross made of the wood that his father made. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine that day? If you're living in darkness and you think that Christians are something to be made fun of, I'm going to tell you something right here and right now. There will come a day where, no, we won't make fun of you. But it will absolutely be a final goodbye. The scripture tells us on that last day, if you have not made a decision, placing your faith and your life in Christ, just like that penitent thief, only moments. Listen, folks, he didn't have time. That penitent thief didn't have time to change his life. He had to change one thing. And that was his outlook. And for the next few hours, he stood in suffering. He hung on a cross next to the king. You see, when that last day comes, that fellow knows what Christ looks like. And he knows what heaven looks like. The other guy on the other side, because he knew it all. I know it all. There is no God. Ever since the moment he drew his last breath on earth, breath on earth, he has been living in eternal suffering. What about you? Is that the life that you want to live? For Christians, for followers of the way, I want to say something sacred hangs in the balance of every moment. Are you living as though every moment is sacred? Or are you all jacked up on hurts, habits, and hang-ups that you just can't seem to shed? Let it go. Because Christ went to the cross, he went to a borrowed tomb, and then he vacated, just as he said. God bless you. Happy Resurrection Day. May you live every moment knowing that he is risen. He is risen indeed.